0: Want to welcome you to conversations with Shonda. If you don't mind, just introducing yourself to our listeners. So
1: my name is uh, Eliza Darris, and uh, currently I'm co-executive director of the Minnesota Freedom Fund.
0: Yeah, what does the Freedom Fund do? You just you're you're new too, so there's a whole thing about being a new ED. But talk so to me a- about <laughs> <him>. <laughs> that's a so whole thing and within itself. So I'm a I'm a fresh new ED, and that's replete with
1: all of the. Uh, challenges and all the opportunities that come, uh, you know, with uh, you know such a fresh and new title. So it's it's, uh, it's it's challenging times and exciting times simultaneously. I'm a ball of of uh, energy. I don't know what energy source is going to be from one minute to the next, and so it's an exciting challenge that that we're on right now to to take the organization to the next level. And so what the Minnesota Freedom Fund does, uh, what any of the freedom funds around the entire country do. Uh, is look to disrupt uh, the predatory practice of cash bail uh, so that people have an opportunity to have a fair shake um, with when they're going through their criminal legal system uh, to be able to have a a good outcome for whatever they're charged with. And so what we do know is that people who are uh, incarcerated, unable to post 50, 60, 100, a couple thousand dollars bond, Uh, or bail, we know that those individuals typically have significantly worse outcomes uh, than people who are just able to post, Uh, and and it's really a a values and a means type test uh, in terms of worthiness, and so based off of that, organizations like mine seeks to disrupt practices like that in which predatory um, companies like bail bondsmen um, really seek to uh, extract resources, um, and uh, prey upon uh, communities. And so we seek to disrupt that type of an industry and we are going to disrupt it.
0: Yeah, I love it. Just claim claim your space. And I feel the same way at the Minneapolis Foundation a couple of years ago, we really started going down sort of this bail piece. And I know that I've shared this on the podcast before and with many people, but the Cleef Browder story which if you haven't seen it on Netflix, uh, I swear you have to see it. Um, I mean, you have to have a stomach for his story, but the leadership that that young man displayed and the conviction that he had um, touched my entire heart. And when I realized that he sat in Rikers Island for I think three years and in solitary confinement for a year for theft of a backpack, by the way, and I think it was $900 of bail I began to understand better through his story, the impact that Bell can do on a pre-trial sort of um, before found guilty. What does that mean? What does that mean for justice? What does that mean for lives? And so that really informed informed my thinking. And we've been working on that.
1: So here's the thing, Shonda. I've been in situations in which, you know, I've had Bell on me. I've sat in county jails. I've sat in multiple county jails. I was, you know, on the same case that I was, you know, ultimately convicted of, and I'm sure we'll get into some of that. Um, I've sat in county jails in St. Louis, um, up here in Minnesota and Bemidji and Crookston, right? I've toured the county jails in Ramsey and Hennepin, and and they're very, very, very miserable places to be. And it is well known, and I mean well known uh within uh people who are incarcerated that uh, uh, to be in prison, uh, you'll have a better existence, um, more freedoms and uh, more access to your family than if you were in jail. The conditions are so miserable that, that people sometimes seek to get out of conditions like that even if it means as an innocent person, they make a horrible decision like pleading guilty to a crime that they didn't commit. People also got to think about their jobs. They got to think about their housing. They got to think about their personal relationships. And so as you're sitting in these um, amazingly oppressive conditions, you know, prosecutors are coming through saying, well, go ahead and sign this. We'll give you 15 years of probation. You can get out tomorrow, right? Go ahead and sign this. We'll get you sent to the Department of Corrections. We'll knock all of this off right here. You won't even have to worry about all of these additional charges that we didn't trump up on top of all of that. You were looking at 50 years. We go ahead and sentence you to three years. You can keep fighting it. It'll take us about two years. So now you're thinking like, okay, I'm going to sit in these miserable conditions in this County jail for two years and still get 50 years. Or I could just go ahead, you know, you know, get my life back on track, take this this deal and move forward, not even knowing what you're really setting yourself up for, what you're really signing up for. It's a front-end, back-end cost.
0: Yeah. And they can, basically, they don't have to tell you the truth, right, about what they're offering you or do they have to be forthcoming about what they're offering? So in
1: a situation like when they're bringing forth the actual plea deal, they do have to be truthful um, you're talking about the detectives. The detectives can use, you know, more, more uh, conniving uh, and less than honest tactics. But once the prosecutors come, they have to be completely above board. And so you should not believe that just because the detective said, <laughs> you know, they were going to work something out with the state, uh, that that's going to happen. Most likely, that's actually not going to happen because they're very territorial. And so, you know, an assistant county attorney is not going to really take too kindly to a detective or to an officer um, attempting to negotiate pleadings when they feel like that's their domain. And so they're taking on their advisement, but you shouldn't expect to get whatever that officer offers you. But the cat that's sitting in it, the the woman or the man that's sitting in it, they don't know none of this stuff. They believe what they're being told. Right. And they believe when the detective is saying, like, you don't want to go to prison. I'm telling you, man, it's miserable in there. People are dying. People are doing this. Just go ahead and take this deal and we can get you back out. Right. And so, you know, for people look at facing a lot of that oppression. I mean, the quickest, easiest thing to do is to just take the deal and, and get out, save your apartment, save your job. Right. I mean, people Eat are thinking kids. about the kind of stuff.
0: Yeah. So the, and then the main purpose of bail in the first place is to have a mechanism to guarantee that they will show back up to court. Right. Yep. So it's not necessarily an indication of, of, um,
1: guilt or innocence
0: of risk or guilt or innocence.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so, and so it's not, and, and the way that we know it's not <laughs> is because like someone can be charged with um, not paying a traffic ticket, you know, and that thing and turn into a warrant somehow. And somebody could be charged with with a homicide twice over, right? They killed their family or something. I don't know, right? But if that person had a $550,000 uh, bail uh, and the other person had a $500 bail, well, the traffic ticket, tiff- and it's not going to be uh, 500, it might be $250 for the traffic ticket, right? I was exaggerating. The traffic ticket person, if they don't have that, well, they don't stay in there. But if the person just so happen to have better means that, than than other type of means, they're going to be able to get out if they put that $550,000 up. Right? So it's not necessarily an assessment of who's a risk to public safety is do you have the finances to get out? If you got the finances to get out, because we are a right to bail state, you're going to get out. If you don't, you're going to stay in. And if you want to get out, take this deal.
0: Yeah, so Brian- 90% of people take deals. 90% take deals. 90% plus. Wow. And then Brian Stevenson has the the quote where- You can be uh, rich and guilty or poor and innocent. And that's basically what the bail system has done, is created another system in which the resources that you have actually determine the outcome, not the crime you committed, essentially.
1: And it's not even close. And it's really well studied that if you're
0: properly resourced and if you're out of
1: custody, you're going to get, when I say significantly, you're going to get significantly less time if you're able to bail out. If you're able to bail out and, and you know help to participate in your pleadings, even maybe do some investigative type stuff, if you're able to to, to, to bail out, you're going to have significantly less time and a significantly better outcome. Uh, sometimes we're talking 40, 50 months. Like you're going to have a significantly better outcome than someone who uh, don't have access to those type of resources uh, and they are at the mercy of the of the um, um, attorneys that they have and. And whether or not they have access to, you know, um, investigators and whatnot. And so you're going to be at the mercy of the system and a system that feels overloaded and uh, overwhelmed. uh, And many people uh, actually do get um, under an underserved uh, type of uh, representation.
0: Yeah. At the Minneapolis Foundation, we have decided to focus on bail reform sentencing reform and probation reform as three primary levers of change. Yeah. That we are putting our leadership behind as a way to reduce overall sort of population in prison. Yeah. Um, do you think those are the right areas for us to focus on?
1: Yeah, it, uh, particularly the, uh, the, the probation, right? Um, especially if you're talking about uh, the ISR um, and other Department of Corrections. Uh, so they have enhanced um uh, probation they have isr then they have regular the individuals that are on the isr and it's not many what is states. That? Around, what is that so isr means intensive supervised release right and it's not too many states around the country that actually have isr units right but the individuals who are on isr have a significantly higher probability of being violated um it's 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 very draconian it, it is very intense when they say intense they literally mean intense. If you're, if you're minutes late, you're, you're going to be in trouble. ISR agents show up to your job looking like the SWAT team, right? And so let's say you work at McDonald's. ISR agents, they'll just show up with a full SWAT coming in, two, three of them, and they'll say, we need to talk to you in the back. And it's like, yo, I'm at my whole job right now employers don't want to see that. They don't want to terrify or scare their, their customers into thinking like these big squat looking people who can come whenever they want,
0: right? So they come in, they're coming in because they were late to work or late no, to- No, 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 that, that's a spot check. That's a spot check. Just yes. a spot check. But it's not because they've committed a new crime. You didn't do nothing wrong. It's, it's a yeah. spot check. Just
1: checking on you, making sure you're supposed to be where you're supposed to be, right? <laughs> employers don't want to have that kind of energy in their uh, work environment. And so like you on a short leash now because it's like, well, you know, it's a it's it's a um, uh, it's not a just call state, you know, but they're not just going to terminate you. But at the same time, it's like they didn't know all of that was coming and you didn't know all of that was coming. And so so you have a very, very short leash. Um, I've heard and I haven't really researched this, but somewhere between 60 to 70 percent of people that are on ISR are, are violated at least once, uh, some multiple times. It's very
0: so, difficult. Yeah. And I know we've used examples of um, folks that, as they say, are still on paper and have responsibilities if they can't get approval, let's say, to go to their grandmother's funeral and they go and they're in violation, they can be sent back to jail. So we have an image of people that go back to jail as people that have committed new crime. And in some cases, that is true. But in some cases, they've actually just violated the conditions of their release.
1: It's actually very, very rare for it to be a new crime, right? Um, there's a, a low, that's called recidivism. It's a, it's a low recidivism rate. People are being sent back on technical violations, right? Stuff that, that that you know, when the average person does, it's not even a thing. It's, it doesn't even really matter, right? Um, let's say I did, you know, go to my grandma's funeral and, you know, I, I am bereaved, right? Um, this may have been a person that, you know, and I might it might be in Wisconsin, you know, and so just the fact that I went over there, came back a few hours later, I have violated, I will be detained and I will face uh proceedings. I might get 30 days, and 30 days might not seem like a lot, but if you secured an apartment, secured a job, and a number of other things, now here you are, they can restructure you, meaning don't send you back, meaning just so say, okay, well, now you got to come into the house at, I don't know, 10 o'clock. They could do that. that that's a tool that's, that's in their arsenal. But they're choosing, uh, but COVID has stopped this a little bit. Before then, they were choosing and they might kick it right back up once you know uh, uh, the COVID crisis dissipates. They're choosing to violate people and send them back for 30, 60, 90 days. And at that time, no employer going to be holding on to your job for no entire month. There's no landlord. How are you going to pay the rent? Most people are living check to check. So yeah, you got to go, you're evicted, right? Your car, that might get taken away, who knows? So now you got to get back out and you're starting from scratch again. And you have to do the work to build that stuff right back up or you're going to get violated again. And it turns
0: into this. Yeah, just sort of a vicious cycle that people can't get off of. Do Do you have any idea what the impact on the kids are? So, I mean, just, so again, The agents,
1: not just ISR agents, but any agents, really, uh, they can come to your house when they want. I mean, that's you. You sign up for them to be able to come when they want. Some of them come at night. And, you know, children. I mean, just imagine, you know, I'm a little kid. My dad, my mom, we all watching a movie together. I don't know. Bambi, who knows? You get at the door. Right. It's like, oh. Weird way to knock. Well, let's go check this out. This person comes in, and you're seeing your dad being directed, being you know, emasculated. Um, yeah, it is very in front of the family, right? And and uh, the only thing that dad probably would really want to do is say, "Can we go in the back and talk?" You know what I mean? Like because the kid is scared. You got this because they they typically show up, you know, several deep. You got this big, and it's like. This is this person's image of their father, of this interaction that's happening. And if anything goes wrong, now the dad is gone and it's like, they took my dad away,
0: Mm -hmm. right?
1: For whatever reason. And so I just have an issue
0: Mm -hmm. with,
1: well, I'm gonna always have an issue when agents show up to someone's job. I feel like that's out of bounds. I feel like it's totally unnecessary. Um, I feel like it disproportionately happens to people that look like you and I. And if reform needs to happen, it needs to be in a space like that. There is absolutely no reason in the world. Absolutely no reason in the world for agents to show up to someone's place of work. Absolutely no reason. Unless they believe that something dishonest has happened uh, and that you are harming someone in that uh, uh, workplace, or that you are doing something uh, uh, less than legal inside of that workplace, then I can understand it, right? But to just show up as a spot check, to me, is wholly inappropriate, right? Mm -hmm. To show up too late at night to someone's home that they have family in is inappropriate. It's inappropriate, and it's emasculating, and it's dehumanizing, right? And so I understand you know, they, they want people on their toes. You know, they, they, they want people to know at any time we can just show up. OK, I get it. Right. You, 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 you don't know, you know, what hour it's going to come from. So the, the, I, I guess the notion is to just be on your P's and Q's at all hours and all times because we could just any come. OK, I get that. Right. That doesn't make it any less dehumanizing, demoralizing and embarrassing in front of my family that this is happening. Because really, I just can't we just talk on the side?
0: You know what I mean? Like I don't want my yeah. wife and children to see this. I'm trying to it read, I'm my neighbors. Yeah, it also doesn't seem to have deterred any sort of crime or reduced. I, I don't know what the point of it is, I guess. I don't know what the what the impact has been other than what you're saying, command and control.
1: It's command and control, period.
0: That that is that that is
1: the absolute heart and soul of it. Um, that's it. That's all it is. And like I said, even if, even if we took off the table, the home visits, there's absolutely no reason to go to a place, a person's place of work. Absolutely no reason. And that's the type of practice that should stop immediately.
0: Yeah. So, okay. So let me, so then this comes up for me, like, I think we stopped the no knock warrants. Um, how does that factor into, um, the, the agents being able to come to home? Because it feels like it's a very different.
1: It's different, it's different okay. uh, because you're technically, so I can't vote, right? Um, I can't vote because I'm on probation, right? And so in Minnesota, you have to serve two thirds of your sentence physically in custody, and you can serve one third of your sentence not physically in custody. And so technically, while we are out here, we're still under the care of the Commission of Corrections. We're just like freely doing it, right? Um, and so the the level of protections that's a, a afforded to you as a citizen, um, that I don't receive those same... So so right now, um, the the um, agent that's over me, because I'm still on probation, there's an agent over me, they can come and search my house right now. Just right now, search the whole house, right? Um, it doesn't matter who I have in here, what I got going on, they can just search. A police officer can, um, if I get pulled over for a speeding ticket, they see I'm on probation, they can call the probation officer. With you, they would need probable cause and a lot of other things. But with me, the probation officer can tell the officer, search the car, make me get out, and they could just search in. I lose a lot of those protections. Like you can vote, I can't vote. So a lot of the, the typical protections that's, that's afforded to people, um, those of us who are on
0: probation or parole, uh, we're not afforded those protections. Mm-hmm let's talk about how you ended up on parole and on probation (laughs) because we've talked about it a little bit but I think I mean it's such um it's part of who you are and part of your journey we had an opportunity to to get to know each other a little bit um you know and after we talk about this piece I want to talk about our work with the police deadly force working group but Share as much as you feel comfortable uh, about sort of your... I'm just experience. checking to see how much time we get. <laughs> I know. I mean, tell me. I want to know a little bit because I think I think it's just... I just think it's an important for people to have context of what's happening out here. Actually,
1: so, you know, a lot of people look at me today and they think like, oh, he's an attorney. You know, uh, oh, you know, he's this. And, and, and there's all of these preconceived notions of who I am, what I'm about where I have gone, and what I have done. And absolutely none of them are right, right? Uh, and then um, absolutely none of them are wrong. I'm all of that and none of that, right? And so one of my mentors said to me, they shouldn't be able to smell a penitentiary on you, right? Like, we should have done what we needed to do at such a level, they, they shouldn't even be able to smell it on you, right? And, and uh, because I sat up under the tutelage of men in there of towering characters and towering intellect, some of the best men to date that I've ever met in my life. And I done ran into governors, mayors, CEOs, executive directors, right? Um, you know, shot callers in the streets. And these brothers to date are, are some of the best men I've ever met in my entire life. And they mentored me from a teenager till I ultimately was released from prison at 32. And so the backstory to that is um. You know, when I was 15 years old, I ran away from home with a carnival. You know, I just, I, I couldn't take it no more. Uh, I just, I ain't want to abide by no more rules, policies, restrictions, guidelines that my mom was putting down on me. I wanted, I said, give us free. Give <laughs> us right? free. I mean, can we talk about the carnival piece? Did you say a carnival? Carnival, carnival. <laughs> I'm just
0: uh, curious. Well, we can get to that later anyway. Go ahead. They they it.
1: about no elephants and tiger. <laughs> it's a carnival. A carnival in
0: St. Louis just came okay. through, and you just went with them.
1: With rides and games, there ain't no tigers and and bears and all of that old minus. This is rides and game, not the circus. People be uh, aggravating me with that. Okay, okay, yeah,
0: you're right. I kind of did that. Okay, I'm with this you. Carnival, right? a carnival,
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was a concessioneer, right? <laughs> <a, that's laughs> <a>, uh. <laughs> and so and so I made a decision that you know I I didn't want to be home no more, and so. You know, the carnival came to town um, and i worked for it, you know, because I thought it was a real I was 15. I thought it was a really cool way uh, to pick up <laughs> girls. You know what I mean? And so they walk by the game and I could call out to any of them. Just call over, Hey, uh, you try this game yet? And come on. What do I got to do? You know, and I had I had fun. I had a good time. And so, you know, um, I got in, I was in summer school because I had failing grades. I was in the eighth grade um, and I got into a fight and then I was expelled. So I knew, dang, now I got to go home, tell my mom I'm expelled, I'm flunking. So I'm definitely going to be in the eighth grade. So I don't, I don't got nothing else to look forward to in this. So, I'm, so I was like, you know what? That's it. And so I decided to leave with the carnival um, uh, to my mother's great chagrin, right? And she tried her best to get me to, you know, she was following behind me in the car. <laughs> I had a duffel bag full of clothes and I took a couple of her pillows. And so she, she was following me behind in the car. She jumped out. She was like, Where are you going? I said, I'm leaving with the carnival, mom. It's time. Since this and then she was like, Well, you ain't taking my pillows. <laughs> so she, she took the pillows away. Um, I left. And I had traveled around the better part of the United States with this carnival as far. Uh, South as Albuquerque, New Mexico, um, as far north as Roseau, Minnesota, Amarillo, Texas, uh, Minot, North Dakota, um, Tulsa, you know, uh, just a number, Denver, Colorado, that was one of the most beautiful cities I had been to. Uh, And so I just traveled around a better part of the United States with this carnival. Uh, But, you know, it, it, it wasn't the easiest life at all. It wasn't the easiest life in the least bit. You see, um, it's a motley crew of people who would almost never typically have contact with each other, right? And so with us, you know, you had Crips, blood, Stones, Vice Lords, right? Who who really geographically would be dispersed, and so you wouldn't have access to these groups, right? Uh, and in St. Louis, it's you're like gridlocked almost. And so I never went to the to the uh, Arch, uh, you know, you you really don't do all that extra traveling around, even in the city. So the, the notion of outside of the city, you never even thought about that. People live and die on blocks. Yeah. Right? And so now you got these groups clashing. And I found myself in the middle of a lot of that. And, you know, ultimately, I'll you know, cut the story short, but ultimately, in the midst of one of these clashes, I participated in taking someone's life. And, you know, it was a horrible and faithful decision uh to make. It was, it was the culmination of multiple skirmishes and clashes between groups of individuals. And, um, and and a man lost his life. And I had responsibility in there, you know, for the part that I played and I then made the decision not to testify against the other adults that was involved because I was 15 and these were grown men. These guys was in their twenties and thirties and forties, all of them. And so everybody was arrested. But not everyone made that type of decision that I made. I so said, they offered me, you know, eight years. They offered me 12 years. They offered me 15 years. They, um, they offered me uh, 30 years. And at this point, I was like, y'all, right, stop bringing deals. Because y'all, first of all, y'all keep going up, right? And if the most I can face is 30 years, uh, why would I plead guilty to 30 years? I'm going to just go to trial. Um, and so, but I was facing first degree counts. And in Minnesota, there's an automatic sentence if you're convicted. I think that they thought no way, shape, and in 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 no way, shape, or form, I would take this all the way to trial. Um, you took the trial, and the trial was here in Minnesota. It was right here in Minnesota because okay. the, the the crime happened in Minnesota, okay, even though you. they came to St. Louis and brought me back up here. Okay. Um, and so I lost at trial, um, and I was sentenced to life in prison as a teenager
0: at fifteen,
1: at uh sixteen at this time.
0: And what you could be sentenced to life in prison at age 15 in our state? At 14. At 14. Okay. So there was
1: 14-year-olds. One guy, his name is Jerry Vang, You know, one of one of uh, you know, one of my closest buddies. Uh, he was so dang. He was so dang tiny. You know, when he first walked into the prison, you know, I remember, you know, and I'm a teenager too. You know, I was I was probably about 17. And I remember seeing this little bitty dude come through. um... Jerry Vane, I was like, what the, why I mean, they got a whole kid up in here. I'm a kid myself, right? You know, but but he was so incredibly tiny. And I guess he was involved in a drive-by shooting. Um, He wasn't the shooter, but he was there. And in Minnesota, if you are, if you're in the vehicle and if you don't seek to stop whatever's happening, you are considered as guilty as everyone else, right? Uh, And he also didn't take a deal to testify against the adults because he didn't. Uh, He received an accessory um, charge. And in Minnesota, if you're an accessory to first degree murder, you're also sentenced to life in prison. And so he received um, a life imprisonment sentence as an accessory to first degree murder. I'm not sure what they what they expected out of this 14 year old when you have grown men with guns. But I guess, you know, he needed to intervene in that situation and his failure to do so um, cost him dearly. Uh, but again, typically the expectation is for us to take deals. That is what they expect. And I'm sure they were also shocked that Jerry also did not take a deal um, and and face that eventual outcome, which was a life imprisonment sentence. He's still in there right now, as a matter of fact. Is so he? 14 so, years old sentence to life.
0: That's crazy. That's sad. It's um, been about 20 years. And so you served how much time? So I served seventeen. Jerry's been in there for a, a little over twenty years. What was that conversation like with your mother? When I first received the sentence. When you first had to tell her you were going to jail. I mean, what was that like? When she's, you know, I have this image. I'm a mom of sons, right, of kids, and she's following you with the backpack. She's she's pouring into you, right? So she it wasn't like she wasn't caring for you. Mm-hmm. Um and then now you have to tell her that you were involved in this crime. Did you I'll never
1: forget. Uh, well I didn't have to because the cops did. And I and so I went to St. Louis. I went back home. Um, and I enrolled back in school and everything. You know, I was determined at this point to pass eighth grade. You know, I was gonna just go on with my life, right? And um, no, right uh, the, the arm of the law is long. And so it reached out and touched me like at t Um, mom always told us that if you get in trouble with the police, I am going to turn your butt in. She always said that growing up. I mean, always said, right. And so they came, they knocked and they were, you know, 20 of them all in their tactical stuff. And and uh, I was asleep and I remember dreaming that that like they were coming down and they were actually coming down and mom was leading them. And then mom stood to the side and they came, they got me, they lifted me off, cuffed me all up. And then she finally asked, so now what is he being charged with? And then uh, the officer said in the most solemn way possible, murder. And then I just remember hearing the break in her voice and I never forgot it and I'll never forget it. And so she was like, murder like the way it was just a break in her voice, something broke there, and it just uh, it it, it just it just I just wanted them to just get me out of there. Just like I didn't want to, you know, I just wanted to go. I was embarrassed, I felt terrible. I just wanted to just get out of the space as quick as possible. If they I just wanted them to just like take me and go, um, but I'll never forget, um, the break in her voice. Uh, she was shocked and. Um, there was a lot of dismay and terror um, in what I heard in her voice oh, wow. that I, I would imagine she never thought that, you know, her youngest or her her um, middle child, you know, would be in that type of a condition. Yeah.
0: And so you just you just had lunch with her over the weekend. I saw her her picture,
1: <laughs> picture
0: Yeah. Um, you know, beautiful woman, right? Like moms, we bear parents, I should say we bear bear a lot. And obviously, you have done a lot in those years. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the things I think I read, and social media is fantastic for this, is I think you talked about how much time you spent in the library, which is another thing that I think we just kind of have in common. And um, so you spent your time in there getting mentored and reading. And so school wasn't maybe it for you, but learning, and it feels like your curiosity has always been consistent. And yep. so sometimes I think we conflate the structure of education with young people's willingness to learn. Mm-hmm. I think they're the same thing. And so you go into prison, and you are on a path to where you are now, or what? what now I go it? into
1: prison, and I made sure the prison was filling my anger. So I mean, when I first went in there, I was on a war path, and and like I was a you know, like I wanted them to feel my anger and my rage. I couldn't believe that that jury brought back a guilty verdict and that like I was sentenced to life. And so I was not a happy camper and I wasn't pretending to be a happy camper. And so I got into a lot of altercations. Those first few years inside a prison was very tumultuous, very challenging and very dark. Those were dark days in my life uh, to such an extent that the prison made the decision that it was gonna separate me from the rest of the masses. And so they sent me to a prison called Oak Park Heights Port Heights was a level six security prison at the time. That's a super maximum. It was one of only a handful of super maximum prisons in the entire country. Because it was a level six facility, uh, inmates from all around the country could actually be housed in there. And so they had federal inmates and some real serious uh, uh, dudes was in there. Um, and so um, each unit only can hold 50 people. Now, a regular unit can hold hundreds and hundreds of people. I mean, you, hundreds of people are in the units. But in Oak Park, because it's all about command and it's all about control, it's 50 per unit, right? Um, and it's amazingly controlled. It's incredibly controlled. Um, and so after a couple of years, they sent me to Oak Park Heights. And it was in Oak Park Heights that I that I ran into one of my, 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 my most endearing mentors. Uh, he actually began to train me in the art of boxing. And and so, you know, I was just thinking that I was training so that, you know, I could continue to give these dudes the business and back them up off of me, you know. And so, but what he was actually teaching me was how to discipline my mind and discipline my body, right, And, and see myself differently positioned than what I was. I started to have a little bit more, I started to walk with dignity and aplomb, right, because I could carry myself differently, um, I didn't know that, that training was going to do all of that for me. Now, he, did, he wasn't the one to try to ad- advance me academically, but I think what he put on me was the discipline necessary to accelerate academically. And even when I started studying law and ultimately fought to get my life sentence reversed on appeal, um, it was the discipline that I received from him that even today, it, it carries with me now. I am a, I am a soldier. I am disciplined. And that really helped. He was like a 60 year old man. I was a teenager. I was probably 19 at the time. Right. So he was like a father figure for me, too. He he also was studying the Bible with him and a number of other things. So this was one of the first mentors. But then I had access to brothers like Willie Lloyd, who gave me just dozens of books to read. I kidnapped a lot of his books. He never said nothing, never made me feel bad. Now, I wasn't the same way when I started mentoring. You were not finna just Hold on to my books. (laughs) But these brothers would just give me books to read and challenge me and just really help me grow intellectually, spiritually, emotionally. They prepared me for where I'm at today.
0: The guys who did that for you, were they mostly lifers?
1: Mostly lifers.
0: Mostly lifers. And they knew that was the way that they, they chose to give back is to make sure you didn't come back? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly.
1: But I'm coming back. And I've come back. I've come back plenty of times. And I told some of them I'm coming back to get you out, right? Uh these are some of the best men that I've ever met in my life. And this th- this this community would only benefit by having these type of ca- like towering, well they respected out here in these streets. They can say things out here in these streets that none of these other people running around claiming to be leaders can say. And like that people would move Right. But but that's because they built rapport with people over many, many, many years inside of there. This is why people wonder, you know, how can somebody like me? Right. Slide down on some of the brothers out here. And then they say, brother, Darius," to me. Right. Young people, they wonder, like, how is he able to connect with the people in the streets and the police chief? And it's over here. It's because I spent a lot of years in there building relationships. These are these brothers know me. When they needed a noodle or something to eat, they came to me. I provided that for them, right? I was also elected as the grand sheik in there. That's a religious title for some of the, so I was, I was one of the youngest grand sheiks in the country. Every single Friday, I'm dropping measures off of the podium. So I didn't come out here and all of a sudden started speaking. I was trained as a, as a servant leader by them brothers in there over many, 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 many years. What I'm doing out here now is a continuation of the training and the discipline and the mentorship that I had received over many years inside of prison
0: mm-hmm. they then, told
1: me They told me how to center community, they told me how to serve as a leader, right? They trained and taught me all of this. I didn't come out here and learn this. They trained me and taught me how to be a servant leader
0: and I imagine that not just through your own story. Because I wanna make sure that when people hear us talking, it is not about people not doing time for any crime that was committed, but it is about the system being fair. And it is about providing opportunity for people to come back out and be successful, right? Is that what we're talking about? Is it more than that or is it less than that or? Well, it's more than that. Right. What we're t- so let me take a step back.
1: I got to highlight this. We're not talking about like, you know, the stuff that I'm talking about, we were breaking the rules to do so. It, it, you know, they weren't supposed to give me books. Technically, they violated prison policy every single time. They gave me a book to read. Sometimes we would be down there on the galley and it would be eight or nine of us around the table reading, breaking down some kind of science. Right. We might have read a passage out of out of a book, and now we're going to go around in a circle. We call it a cipher, and everyone is going to give their portion of understanding. Each one teach one. That's how we learn. That's how we train with each other. Right. And it'll be another table on the side of us playing cards, playing poker loud, slamming the cards down. Right. Most of the fights break out because of the poker table. I have had so many experiences in which COs would come up to my group. We sitting around peaceful, just we just got books on the table. And these people would tell us we're violating policy because only six people can be around the table at once. And y'all look to have eight. So y'all got to break this up. I look right over at the poker table. I'm, look, I'm, I'm looking at the poker table. Now, I'm not going to, I ain't going to dry snitch and be like, what, you're going to say something else, but you ain't going to say nothing about the poker table? Are they loud? Are they slamming cards? This is where all the fights is happening. We're quiet. We're disciplined, we're reading books. So I wasn't gonna be like, yo, you're you gonna say something else, but not them. But I mean, I understood where they was coming from and the wickedness yeah. therein. I understood that, right? I understood the threat that what we were doing represented, breaking and cracking open minds. That wasn't cracking no minds open, slamming down cars and dominoes and all of that. That's that's exactly
0: what they wanted them to do. And yeah, I was surprised at how them. many, I was surprised at how many books are actually on the like violation list in prisons. Some of them is some of the most ridiculous. I'm just uh, Nathan, like, they're violating Nathan books. Nathan McCall's
1: Make Me Wanna Holler. I know. Are y'all serious? Are y'all serious?
0: <laughs> I'll say y'all ought to, y'all need to stop. All
1: right? Yeah. Y'all need to
0: stop. Yeah, it's, I read that list. I was appalled. I'm like, they're, the, the lies that we are telling ourselves about what we're trying to do in prison. And I think that the more people know, the more they should be uh, appalled pure mind control and so
1: even for me to get into the college classes the the the, the prison officials that was getting me in those, we were violating the rules right i wasn't because if you have murder convictions you weren't supposed to be in the classes but it wasn't enough people to fill the spots up and so on the lolo low, the, the teacher because it was a teacher who would authorize us to get in there on the lolo they'll get us in there right and so and we also really contributed to the, to the atmosphere, of the classrooms, the professors loved us. But if you was convicted of murder, you wasn't so, I'll be sitting in Oak Park minding my business, watching a TV show. And at the bottom of the dang ticker, it's gonna say something like, if you have a rape crime or a murder crime, you can't sign up for college. And I'm like, I'm literally just sitting here reading about watching a movie. You know what I mean? It's just like, it's just constantly hitting, 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 right? You are supposed to like go towel down and have your head low and just hate yourself. Right now, I can't do anything for one of the worst decisions that I ever participated in in my life. I did that, right? But if if there is no if there is no opportunity for transformation, if there is no opportunity for me to do any work that is good in order to help to give back, in order to help to restore what I have broken, and what others have broken, if there's no pathway forward, then why don't we continue to live? Why don't we just just die? Right? If I'm supposed to be perpetually tied to my worst decision, not my best, but my worst decision, and I'm supposed to be defined by that perpetually, then why continue to live? What is the purpose of my life? Is there any more meaning in my life? Is no good that I do good enough. Is it always the worst that I've done 20
0: years ago, 30 years ago? How many people have I saved? Yeah. And I think that's the point of why we're working in this criminal justice reform. And I think that's kind of where we get back to is that there are people that are on paper. There are people that are having people show up to their jobs. There are people that are pleading to charges or um, not being able to bond out. And they're just caught in this trap. And they've made some maybe they've made some bad decisions, but they're trying to find a way to get out of it right, so that that bad decision isn't weighing them down and their family down for the rest of their lives. There should be opportunity to move through that.
1: Now, out of 10 people who may have made a bad decision, right, let's say we have that one person who actually didn't make a bad decision. They're actually innocent, right, but they feel enormously pressured to to maintain they got a family to take care of. They got to get out of here. They got to get out of this county jail. They got to show back up to work Monday. Like they got to get in there. They, they can't they can't risk losing it all. So then, yes, they're gonna take that that probation for fifteen years. Now we got a probation cap now that many of our or that many of us have worked. You all helped have worked in coalition to put a cap of five years. not not, not five years. That's a lot of years. There's been studies that talk about the diminishing returns of being on probation five, six, seven, eight, nine. It just, there's a diminishing return. And actually the probability of of the the continuation of that actually having adverse effects if you're on too long, right? And so they're thinking that they're getting out. But it's like, yo, you are really actually signing away your right to vote and participate in some of the most basic civic functions of society, right? And you're actually signing up to be locked out of society for 15 years. You thought, that you was that you were saving yourself by pleading to something that you know you didn't do when it actually you were sentencing yourself. And at any time in the 15 years, you can be technically brought back to a county jail on a technical violation, not a new crime, but but a technical uh, violation. You showed up too late. You forgot to report in Just something technical. Right. I forget all the time. You know what I mean, and I, so I'm very fortunate that people call and be like, "Did you?" And I be, "Oh, man, you know what I didn't, because you got a life that you're living." So yeah, you might be signing yourself up for something that's worse uh, than you you would have if you continued to fight uh, for justice and yeah. for what was right.
0: But well, I give
1: it, It's a lot of pressures.
0: Yeah, I know that I've been. You know, I'm a bit of an observer, and I um, I think I shared with you that I saw you working down in Atlanta, and I've seen you in different spaces, and I'm always um, impressed with a couple of things. One is that you're so open about sort of your past and being in prison and um, giving, I would say, honor to the men that, that influenced you while you were there, I think. And then coming out with um, such passion and connection to making a difference for others Um, and and how they experience um, not just the justice system, but really just justice, right? Yeah. Um, And, you know, before we go, I want to touch on this because you and I were on the Police Deadly Force Working Group that first day. So it was a commission, um, the Attorney General and the Commissioner of Public Safety put together sort of this task team. I think there were 18 or so of us. It was a 10-month deal where we were looking at how to report reduce uh, deadly incidents by police. It was March of uh, 2019 and we concluded, the report came out March of 2020. Mm -hmm. Um, And now we're a year later. And so we just put out um, sort of the progress to that. So if anybody wants to go look, they can go and find that on the AG's website. But um, that first day, so when when I got asked to be on it, and so the Minneapolis Foundation funded it and then um, I got asked to personally sit on it. So I sat and thought about that for a long time. On uh, Number one, of you did. man, like, do I have the emotional bandwidth? First of all, like, we're going to be listening to people that have been impacted by police deadly incidents. Do I have the emotional bandwidth to sit and listen to family members who have lost loved ones? Like that within itself was like, it felt like the biggest responsibility. Mm -hmm. I think the second thought that I went through is whatever we produce is going to be disappointing to someone. And am I willing to take the shots that are going to come my way? Mm -hmm. Right. And obviously I decided to do both. Thank God. Thank God. Right. But then that first meeting, I was really about to just backtrack.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And I felt that energy. I I, uh, I felt what was happening in that moment I I wanted to make sure that I touched bases with some of y'all because I knew I was going to need y'all
0: yeah yeah so the first meeting we we come in and there was a group of what 40 yeah people that just protested the mess out of that table for three hours shut that whole one down shut (laughs) it down I was good until one of them stood behind me and then I had to go a little north side. <laughs> I had to get a little north side. Like you can stand in front of me all day, but you got to get from behind me because that that's, you know, I'm going to have to, you're going to have to get in front of me. But i I just sat there because we're here for them. Yeah. And the way that change looks like when you are doing it from within looks different. And to have your community kind of look at you like you're selling out, or you're like dealing with the devil. Like, I mean, there was just something that was creating just like great angst for me. Yeah. That particular day. I'm glad I stayed with it, but man, that was just, that was one of the hardest days I've had.
1: Yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was intense, but uh, you know, I run with that crowd. (laughs) So I've, you know, it was really intense. They were looking at me like, why are you here? (laughs) But I was there as a function of ACLU You know, we wanted to make sure that we as part and parcel to these discussions It's very, very, very fortunate for this community that you was there as well. I have watched, you know, I was impressed and actually motivated by and, and I look forward to the day in which I'm able to carry myself with the type of dignity and with the passion and with the vigor and be able to speak in like the very, Clear and cogent way that you were able to communicate very clear idea. It was it was it was almost mechanical. Right? And I don't. I'm not trying to you know, but it was very methodical. That's a better word. It was almost methodical when you began to speak. So you would listen and then speak methodically. And I think because we all knew that whatever you was going to ultimately say was going to be pretty reasoned, and weighed. I think people was as soon as you started. People would just like key in and hope <laughs> that like <laughs> you would you know land <laughs> closer and and so the role that you played to get us past so many um, impasses, right? And and to prevent, cause you know I was I was always you know ready and willing. If if, if, the, if we gonna bring this fire, I'm, I, I'm I'm gonna bring the fire, right? And so they always knew my energy was, I was always ready to go there if they wanted to go there. Right. But we needed to be able to continue to move because we are on, we're all on the same side in some matters of speaking, but we're coming from different perspectives here. Right. And we needed to be able to be functionally moving forward. And I was just really grateful on so many occasions that you were able to help navigate us through really, really difficult areas of discussion, really difficult, um, in which sometimes we, uh, I remember that time when we just had to take a break. We had to take a break, it got too hot. I was hot, I was hot under my collar, you know, and, and we just, we needed a break. And then I saw you and the judge and a few, I saw y'all uh, uh, caucusing, right? And the and, and prosecutor, uh, the county attorney, I forget the name, because we was at another point in which, <laughs> We, we wasn't seeing it the same way. And I wasn't willing to do too much moving, right? And they wasn't willing to do because we're all thinking we're taking major losses here. And so to be able to work these compromises out and to watch you do it, it was very instructive to me. And, and, and I can't tell you enough how much I really do. Um, history is going to record how valuable you were to that
0: process. Thank you for that. And, yeah, that and, was a, that was a good day. And yeah, we caucus. <laughs> They're like, why don't you trust me? I'm like, why don't you trust me? <laughs> like, I mean, why don't you trust us? Like, there's a community voice, but I think that you know, we did. We caucused right at the Minneapolis Foundation out the door. We came back in like we reached an agreement. <laughs> it was I was like, what? <laughs> and uh, and
1: uh, I was like, what? And then the uh, lobbyist was like, what? <laughs> so like we we like this, you know? And so and it was it was, it was a it was it was reasonable. I wasn't, you know, I couldn't get everything I wanted and they wasn't, we all didn't get everything we wanted, but we worked this thing out. And if you notice, there wasn't too much thinking that had to be done, you know, with the legislature in the last session. Why? Because we did all of that. We fought them battles and we fought them things enthusiastically
0: and with vigor. And so what they ended up doing was implementing what we came up with. That's exactly right. And I think, you know, there were so many lessons, right, of like just sticking it out. I remember that first day that I said was as grueling. And um, And it was long. Man, it was long. I just felt all kinds of offended. I felt all kinds of compassion. I mean, there was just a range of everything. And I remember, man, and I remember when we took a break and then one of um, Tashira, who was protesting, As I walked by her, I looked at her and we gave each other a hug. (laughs) Like you've been screaming at me for three hours, since, just give me a hug, right? So we like hug each other and we move along. But when I'm looking at what's happening, right? And I know this this is a broad sweep, but you have people that won't sit at tables with people they disagree with. And we basically sat at a table with people that we probably wouldn't even be with for 10 months. And we've made a lot of progress on that one thing. Right, and being able to stick with it, or being able to say, "Look, I'm willing to compromise to some extent, but you know, but there are some things that I'm I'm not I'm unwilling to move on." And so, you know, tell me your thing, and let's let's figure it out. And us be able to move in a room, I think, was a really important lesson that I, I understood, and I know the importance of it. It's not like it doesn't happen every day, but in in issues like like this, that is so polarizing.
1: to be around
0: the table. We were around the table with 60% law enforcement, basically. Yeah.
1: But we had firepower. Like, you know, we had some strong, we had strong energy on our side too. And so while we were outnumbered, like I said, when you spoke, all sides listened uh, because it was going to be fair and measured and and all of that. And so, so, yeah, we had really, we had the right people. I'll say, the community was really, really well served uh, by having us there. You know, uh, Dr. Tyner, um, um, Dr. Um, Lewis, uh, Brittany. yeah, Brittany Lewis. You know what I mean? They were really well served by the brilliant minds who were. You know, we were stewards of our community inside of those those very difficult discussions, and and like it was difficult, you know, because you know we have to hear testimony of anguish, testimony of family members you know that I never see their loved one again and you know then all of the technical testimony then we would have to go and and you know decipher through all of that stuff and come up with meaning and then come up with policy based off of that meaning and so it wasn't yeah. the easiest task
0: no it wasn't it wasn't it was worth it it felt it worth brilliant. it and i was glad to to be with you i witnessed you be pretty excellent at that table too by the way <laughs>
1: I tried to I try to be a poker and a product. I'm here, like,
0: you know, I can move all sides and then you come out with like and policy HR 2050. <laughs> you like have all the policies down the pad. I'm like, okay, this dude studying. I can just I know human behavior. No. Um, you know, I can talk and I can listen. I'm observant and I can pull it together. But I, I do feel like that's that was just
1: I'm a legal mess. beagle. I'm gonna study up on it. You know what I mean? You do yeah. need to say it. Right, so I am a, and so that goes back to like even when I was in, uh, I know we got to go. but yeah. like, Even even when I was in prison, you know, I started studying. Uh, I got my GED and I started going to college classes. I would read up on the subject of the professor several months before the class, just so I can go in there and debate with those professors. And just like just, I was a total contrarian my entire sentence in there, and I'm a contrarian today.
0: That's why need people like you. <laughs> I love it though. I love I love all of of everything that you're bringing. All everything in. brought together, you know? I'm just not going to be trying
1: to do all of that. I'm going to be providing that, <laughs> that uh for force. But we need to we we need bridge builders. We need people to contextualize and we need we need, you know, uh people who who got access and spaces and places that other people don't. People like you and I are now getting access deeply and to helping to create policy reforms. We're bridges between a lot of the energy and efforts that's, that are boots on the ground. We help to translate that into actual policy that is actually implemented. And so we're all in uh, operating in our capacities and serving these roles.
0: Yeah, it's one of the, I guess as we close, one of the things where I think about when people are like the activists and I'm like, you know, there's activists, um, I feel like activists Are taking on, I'm not even going to be able to articulate it at this point, but there are people that are protesting and there are activists that are leading movements like BLM and and other movements, right? There are activists that are activating within organizations and institutions and really pushing change. There are activists that are working on policy level. Like I really invite people to look at who are the change makers and the way that they deliver how they do change might be different
1: right. because
0: I think that as, especially as the broader communities, the white community is looking at how they can be allies.
1: Mm-hmm. I think
0: they yeah. are, um, I would not, I would look at all of the breadth of what people are bringing to this work right now right? because there it's are no folks easy. that really need support that are moving really fantastic change within systems. I would say like you, the work you did at the ACLU, the work you will do at the Minnesota Freedom Fund. Um, and I and I um, really appreciate the work of that organization. We will be partnering with you really closely. Definitely. And if listeners want to find out more, they can go to that website, the Minnesota Freedom Fund. Yep. dot org. Yep. dot org. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate you. Thank you for uh, having this conversation. This was, this was painless. I was all scared. I told you I don't know why. Hey, you know why? I seen you, and
1: uh, I ain't want none of that energy. You know, I've seen you in operation. I was like, oh
0: God, let me study up. I don't even know what to study. She won't even tell me what to study. No, because I want it to be just like this, just free flowing. I want it to be about you. I yep. just like to prompt questions and let people talk.
1: That's what's up. And I appreciate you. I appreciate all the work you're doing. I look forward to having, you know, you know, a really long-term partnerships with you and, and just being excited to see you in space. And and I, when I see you in space, I know everything is all right. Good deal. Back at you. That's Eliza Daris and our host, Shonda Smith-Baker. And once again, if you like what you hear, please follow us from wherever you listen to your podcast. To learn more about the Minnesota Freedom Fund, visit minnesotafreedomfund.com. I'm Sue pak Kienitz from the Minneapolis Foundation. Thank you for listening to Conversations with Shonda.